Welcome to Living Southern Oregon, a podcast dedicated to discovering and exploring all Southern Oregon has to offer. I'm your host, Simona Fino, and I will be introducing you to the people who live here, the things they love, and what makes Southern Oregon a magical place to call home. Welcome, everyone, to another episode here of Living Southern Oregon. Today, I am excited to introduce Luke Riediger. Luke is an off-grid homesteader at the headwaters of the Applegate River below the Red Buttes Wilderness Area and the Siskiyou Crest. He's lived in the Applegate watershed for over 20 years. Luke is a naturalist, environmental activist, author, and backcountry enthusiast. Today, he will be talking about the ecology of the Klamath Siskiyou Mountains, the need to protect the area, and the activist work he does around the region. He is the executive director of the Applegate Siskiyou Alliance, which is a nonprofit conservation organization focused on the Applegate River. Luke has called Southwest Oregon home for his entire life. He lived in Coos Bay, and then he moved to Ashland at the age of eight. All right, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I don't really need to get your journey as to how you got to Southern Oregon because you've been here your whole life. (laughs) Yes, I'm happy to call Southern Oregon home and have no intention of knowing any other home. All right. So, yeah, eight years old is when you came to this area. Was that a hard shift? That's an age where you really remember a lot of Well, I do remember we moved here in the summer from from the coast, from Coos Bay, and it being in the middle of a drought. So I was immediately impressed at how dry and, and what it seemingly harsh it was. Um, but we moved into the foothills up Highway 99 above Ashland. And I quickly started, you know, interacting and relating to the oak woodlands and the habitats that surrounded us there. And although I probably didn't know it at the time, began building this relationship with, with what is now and has been home in the Klamath Mountains. So, yeah, we moved from Highway 99 area into Ashland, and I grew up on Oak Street in Ashland. Um, went to high school in Ashland and grew up uh, knowing the community there and, and getting to know the wildlands of Southern Oregon through experiences there in Ashland. You know, hiking in the Bear Creek floodplain and Ashland Creek floodplain was far less developed. And then also, you know, um, living there in Ashland, had a lot of access to the Ashland watershed before there were trails and spent a lot of time just running around up in that area and getting to know the old growth forests and creeks and over time wandering higher and higher into the watershed and from there began to know and understand what the Siskiyou Crest was and, you know, started hiking around Mount Ashland and Wagner Butte and Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah. And so how, what, at what point did you move to the Applegate? Because you've been there now 20 years, did I get that right? Yeah, I originally actually moved to the Applegate in, I think it was 1998, and I lived for a couple of years on Humbug Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, I caretook a property there uh, for a few years, um, then moved back to the Green Springs area above Ashland mm-hmm. and lived in a teepee there for at 4,800 feet. Uh, did a couple winters like that and decided it would be nice to get down to the lower elevations, and we started looking for a place and just randomly ended up in a place that I had always known about up in the headwaters of the Applegate River, uh, above the Applegate Dam. So I've been there for about 20 years. Nice. Nice, nice. So what, what is the biggest difference, do you think, of between being in Ashland? And obviously being in town is very different than, you know, being out in rural property, but differences 
between that area and out where you are now? Well, the difference I would say where I'm at now is that, you know, we are kind of towards the headwaters of the Applegate River and there is some dramatic, you know, shifts in precipitation and things like that between say the Rogue Valley, even the Rouge area and where we live up towards the headwaters of the river. Like for example, a friend of mine that had lived down on the Little Applegate for, you know, decades had been keeping track of rainfall there. They get somewhere around 15 inches a year of rainfall. Where we live, kind of in this microclimate tucked up against the Siskiyou Crest, and we tend to get a lot more weather. So we average somewhere around 50 inches of rain a year. So oh, wow. that's, that is you know, a huge difference. It's a big, dramatic. You know, a lot of people think of the Applegate as sort of a dry area, mm-hmm. but when you get to the headwaters of the river and you get to those watersheds up above the Applegate Dam, or even more towards the west in, say, Williams or Wilderville or some of those areas, the precipitation can really dramatically increase. And, you know, that leads to a lot of differences in vegetation and forest types and things. So we live more in the forest than a lot of people do in Rogue Valley who who get to live in the beautiful oak woodlands and things like that. And, you know, a lot of the Applegate is known for that oak woodland mixed with the chaparral and the dry forest types. But we live in a little bit more of a, of a blend between, you know, those drier southwestern Oregon habitats and more Pacific Northwest kind of forest-type habitats. Yeah. What elevation? Our property is only at 2,100 feet. So so. we're essentially the same elevation as Ashland or, you know, Mm -hmm. parts of the Rogue Valley. But given our proximity to the the higher mountains and the deep canyon that we live in, vegetation is quite different, forest is quite different. Just a very, it's kind of emblematic of all the different microclimates that you find around Southern Oregon, which is one of the things I really love about this place. It really influences the diversity of this place is, you know, there's big shifts around the landscape, you know, whether it be you be in a rain shadow um, or whether you're in, you know, an area where the, the storms tend to track and tend to, to settle. And we're in more of an area where the, the storms tend to settle. Got it. And so what, what uh, besides I'm hearing that, probably just being out and about as a youth in this beautiful area and running running amok is probably what got your interest. Is that correct? Or what, what kind of developed this? Because you've got a very deep interest and do a lot of amazing work. Um, what got your interest in the ecology of this area? You know, I think, like you said, I just kind of, a, I, I learned to love the mountains at kind of an earlier age. A lot of my friends were, you know, in high school, you know, my, my idea of a good time was to go to the mountains. And, you know, during that time, I was probably about oh, maybe 16 years old. Um, I actually started to get involved in forest activism. So that was in the late 1990s. There was a lot of issues surrounding the logging of old forests. A lot of people call that the timber wars here in southwestern Oregon. And there was a, a legislation that passed through Congress um, with a with a rider attached to must pass legislation called it the salvage rider and they basically nullified nullified a lot of environmental laws and allowed timber sales that had previously been caught up in the courts and deemed illegal to move forward um, with essentially no public process or anything like that and so it was must have been 19 maybe 96 or so I got involved with a campaign to save forests up in the Green Springs. It was called the Hoxie Griffin Timber Sale. It was on BLM land in what is now the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument, but at that time was unprotected. And so uh, they called us the Hoxie Kids here locally. And there was a lot of young kids involved. You know, we could essentially at a moment's notice get 30 or 40 high school kids and a bunch of our supporters, you know, old 
or old hippie protest movement people and, you know, folks that had been, maybe had more experience than us. And we could get up into the mountains and we were blockading roads and we were trying to stop these illegal timber sales from moving forward. Um, unfortunately, that timber sale was logged, but we did make quite a, quite a stink here in Southern Oregon about it. Um, you know, we were blockading uh, roads. We were occupying log trucks right there on Mistletoe Road in the middle of town in Ashland. Um, but we're ultimately unsuccessful in saving that, that forest. And then, you know, about a year later, uh, Forest Service, the River Persisky National Forest, started working on what they called the China Left Timber Sale, which was adjacent to the Oregon Caves National Monument above Cave Junction there on Sucker Creek. People know where that is. And that was another old growth logging project that in the, must have been the summer of 1997, folks occupied that area. We called it the Sucker Creek Free State. And we essentially just sat down and occupied that road for the entire summer until we were evicted by federal law enforcement. The next summer, logging began and folks again tried to influence the outcome of that project by holding it up, by stopping the logging and allowing what were uh, legal challenges to move forward. And again, unfortunately, we were moderately successful in that we were able to hold off the logging for quite some time, but by the time the, the legal challenge went forward and actually prevailed in court, there was only 50 acres remaining. Yeah. So when you're now, say, for people that might know the area, if you go up to Mount Elijah up there above the Oregon Caves and you look out to the south, you'll see these big open clear cuts at the headwaters of Left Fork Sucker Creek. And that was at least a portion of the China Left Timber Sale. So we saved 50 acres, but did not save, you know, a lot of the forest that was threatened at that time. But those, that kind of experience sort of led to where I am today in terms of, you know, hiking into the, through the Kangaroo Roadless area into, you know, the China Left units and seeing those beautiful forests and, and watching them be logged. Um, really changed my perspective and changed my life and sent me on the trajectory I am today. I started to realize that rather than fighting these timber sales after they had already been approved, although valiant and necessary, was not overly effective. So I started getting involved in, in forest activism and trying to kind of alter the trajectory of projects or maybe stop projects that we felt were damaging before they were approved by the federal land management agencies. So I started working on the Mount Ashland ski expansion that was proposed to log ski runs in, and, and put in new ski runs and in the McDonald Peak Road this area. And, you know, thankfully that has never been implemented. But through my activism there, I just, you know, became more and more immersed in the region, did a lot of backpacking, spent, you know, when I was 20 years old or so, I would spend 150 days a year in the backcountry in the, in the Siski Mountains. And so now I try to use, you know, all that experience and all that knowledge that I've learned just being immersed in the mountains and studying the mountains, you know, um, somewhat academically. And I use that, that both that passion for place, that knowledge for place, and just that love for, for the mountains that surround me as kind of the driving force behind the, the work that I do. Yeah. And being in those mountains, that is one way and you just absorbing it, you're just absorbing that. Energy and, and the Klamath Siskiyou are really complex, really interesting mountains. So you know, if I I tend to have a lot of focus on botany, fire ecology, forest ecology, 
although I didn't know it as a kid, you know, growing up here, I do know it now that we are blessed to have one of the most diverse regions on the continent Mm -hmm. um, and some of the most diverse conifer forests in the world. And so the complexity here is really intense. And with that comes this opportunity to just continually learn, continually be blown away by the complexity of relationships out there, the complexity of the environment out there and just, you know, I guess I just feel blessed to, to know that, you know, we live in this still beautiful, wild, relatively intact environment in the mountains that surround us. And so I have kind of taken that on as a, you know, my life's work to, to protect and, and restore and defend these mountains from what I see as threats that are damaging the, the ecology and the environment that we live in. Tell me a little bit about the alliance that you formed. I know it had a previous name, in case people were familiar with that, then you recently, recently-ish. Yeah. <laughs> so probably been a year before. Uh, it's been a little while. It's been actually not too long, <laughs> okay. a handful of months. So basically the Applegate Neighborhood Network was what yeah. we were originally called. And it was just a group of people. We started working on a timber sale a number of years ago called Bald Lake Timber Sale that was proposed up in the Little Applegate watershed. It was originally actually called Little Applegate Neighborhood Network, and it started there to address timber sales on beyond land. So we've been working as a network, you know, for at least, I don't know, 10, 15 years, but only in the last number of years have we kind of formalized the organization, created a nonprofit or out of the what was kind of an informal neighborhood network and I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, we changed our name to the Applegate Siskiyou Alliance because we felt it better reflects what we do and what, we're, what our focus is. And that's the, what we call the Applegate Siskiyous. And so that's basically the 500,000 acre Applegate River watershed from top to bottom, from where it dumps into the Rogue River all the way to the headwaters on the Siskiyou Crest. And we also work in general in the Siskiyou Crest region trying to protect the you know the biodiversity and the connectivity and the wildlands and the rivers mm-hmm. that pour down off of the high high ridge that makes the headwaters mm-hmm. of the Applegate River and to further to the west makes the headwaters of say the Illinois River. So the mm-hmm. Siskiyou Crest divides watersheds of the Rogue River to the north and watersheds of the Klamath River to the south. As you forget further west, you know some of it drains into mm-hmm. the Smith River and such. So it's kind of a big geographic feature here in southwestern Oregon. It creates the headwaters of a lot of our rivers. And it's also an important connectivity uh, area that connects the coast range to the Cascade Mountains. Mm-hmm. So they've protected the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument to, you know, preserve that area where the Cascades and the Siskiyous come together. But the Siskiyou Crest and the Siskiyou Mountains are still largely unprotected. So that's kind of the Siskiyou Crest is sort of the axis for biodiversity here in the West Coast. And it's, it's it, you know, going to become increasingly important as, you know, the climate continues to change and wildlife and species need migratory and connectivity routes to to move across and disperse across the landscape. And so we just really think it's important to protect the values that exist up there for future generations and also for Mm -hmm. the ecology of the area and for our ability as a region to adapt to climate change. Yeah. What are, what are some of the ways folks can get involved if they're wanting to kind of learn more about the organization or what are ways that, yeah, just to, for people to get involved if they want to. The first thing I would tell people to do is go out and get to know the Siskiyou Mountains. You know, the strongest, most effective advocates are those that know the land and love the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So that would be my first advice is know the landscape, you know, that you, that you feel drawn to, to work to protect and, and build a relationship with it because you'll be better at what you do. But in terms of how they can plug in with, you know, existing organizations like Applegate Siskiyou Alliance, you know, we have a website with a lot of information on it. We run a Facebook page that, you know, you can get information off of. Um, we also have a listserv. Um, we lead hikes. Uh, we do educational presentations and things like that around the region. And we just, you know, try to provide opportunities for people to engage with their public land managers, whether that be through comment writing or through, you know, if necessary, protests or or just by, like I said, building more appreciation for this landscape. So, I, you know, to me, I think the first thing to do is to build that appreciation and that understanding and that love for this place and then translate that into, into action. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do. And if you were to give some, some of your favorite spots to go exploring. You know, that's really hard. Um, so people so ask me all the time, what's your favorite spot? And, you know, and a lot of times I'll say, well. The entire Siskiyou. Yeah, it's, it's really hard because it's like, you know, which, which child do you love more? You know, that's not really a fair question. So to me, you but know. Good, how about this then? How about good <laughs> spots? It doesn't have to be your favorite, but good spots that you would recommend that, hey, these are some beautiful spots to go check out. These are, you know, good hikes to, mm-hmm. to get out on that you would recommend. Well, I'd say in terms of just like relatively easier access areas from, say, the Road Valley or even the Applegate Valley, mm-hmm. um, I would highly recommend, you know, during the summer months, driving up Road 20. Um, from that, that connects Mount Ashland to uh, Beaver Creek Road in the Applegate or Dutchman Peak area. And you can get on the PCT up in there, the Pacific mm-hmm. Crest Trail. So, you know, one really beautiful area with a lot of really interesting botany and just really beautiful landscape is the Big Red Mountain area. So you can access that from either Wrangell Gap or Siskiyou Gap. And there's a couple mile section of the PCT in there that goes through um, some areas of uh, serpentine, which is one of the interesting mm-hmm. rock types that we have in our region. It's essentially ancient ocean floor that's been uplifted into mountain and is now a over 7,000 foot peak. And those soils have all kinds of weird minerals and, and heavy metals and things in them that are toxic to a lot of plant growth. And so the species that you'll find there are generally either tolerant to that kind of soil type or they're specifically adapted to that soil type. So you'll find what we call endemic species up there, which are plants that maybe grow nowhere else Mm -hmm. um, but the Siskiyou Mountains. And parts of Big Rib Mountain have been protected as a botanical area by both the Road River Siskiyou and the Klamath National Forest. There's also what we call a research natural area up there. And so it's an area that's been identified and acknowledged as this really important, really complex, relatively intact ecology, and it's also relatively accessible on the Pacific Crest Trail. So that's one place I would say to go, mm-hmm. but I would say just in general, that whole Pacific Crest Trail corridor from Syed Valley on the Klamath River all the way over to Mount Ashland is really accessible, really beautiful, and really diverse. When you're on the eastern Siskiyou Crest, literally every single mountain has its own flora its own geology, you know, you can walk from one mountain to the next and just find yourself in a whole new environment. So there's a lot to see up there and a lot to explore. Nice. Excellent. Well, that'll be good. I've got some of that for the show notes so that people can go back to that later and check it out. Um, And then you were talking a little bit about the organization. I'm just curious when that formed and kind of what, what things you have done 
thus far to, to what, what, yeah, what accomplishments? Like, well, you know, I know at the beginning you were kind of re- referring to like it was a, it was kind of a bummer to <laughs> have put this time and energy into something that had already, that ship had sailed of sorts. So environmental work, it has a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. You know, if you really love the land, your losses are devastating. Your victories can be quite exhilarating mm-hmm. <laughs> and inspiring. In recent years, I would say the Applegate Siskiyou Alliance has made a pretty big difference in, you know, management in the Applegate River watershed. You know, I don't have all the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, the Applegate Siskiyou Alliance has either forced the federal land management agencies to withdraw or cancel thousands of acres of uh, native forest timber sale units, and a lot of, a lot of which were old growth or, or mature forest habitats. A lot of those projects would have included a lot of new road construction that would have built new roads into currently unroaded areas. So we're really proud of a lot of the work that we've done to protect the forests in the Applegate. A lot of times we're working on BOM land that tends to be um, still heavily managed for timber production. And so, you know, that tends to, we tend to have a lot of issues with the way that DOM is managing the landscape in the Applegate Valley. Um, and that has to do a lot with their, with their timber program. Um, but we have made a big difference, we feel, and, and we're proud of that. We're also currently working on some new wild and scenic river uh, protections for the Applegate River watershed. So Senator Wyden has been working on what he calls his River Democracy Act. And what they did was they actually asked for nominations from the public, like, what are the streams that you think should be protected as wild scenic rivers in, in Oregon? And they had this overwhelming, huge response. I think there was like 5,000 nominations or something like that. Applegate Siskiyou Alliance and another group I work with called Klamath Forest Alliance put together nominations for the Applegate River watershed. And, you know, there's, I think, a hundred and some odd miles right now of new wild and scenic river protections that are being proposed by Senator Wyden and have been included in the River Democracy Act legislation. So we're really hoping and, and helping um, kind of push that, that legislation along. We're hoping that will pass, you know, sometime soon. So, and then how, how does that affect what happens in well, that watershed? The Wild Scenic River designation would, although not eliminate, it would curtail and kind of limit a lot of the commercial logging that takes place in, in, in within a proximity of that river corridor. Historically, that river corridor has been about a quarter mile wide, and Senator Wyden has ex- has proposed expanding that to a half mile on either side. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd be getting more bang for our buck out of these wild and scenic river designations than the ones that we had we folks had secured in the past. There are some provisions about mining, and you know. But mainly, you know, limiting mining or, or eliminating mining in some of these watersheds um, because of the potential impacts to water quality and things like that. Um, but mainly what it would do is it focuses on what they call outstanding, outstandingly remarkable values. And so you basically, when you nominate a wild and scenic river, along with that, you identify these values that should be protected. And so what the idea is, is that they identify these values, whether they be recreational or ecological or fisheries oriented or whatever they might be, geology, rare plants, they could be a wide variety of things. And so we've identified these values with our proposals. And the idea is that if and when these areas are protected in wild and scenic rivers, federal land managers would then have to create 
management plans that reflect mm. the values that are that, that each stream segment represents. So they would have to plan and design a management plan that would protect, you know, the rare plants or the the old forests or whatever it is that you've identified as a as an outstandingly remarkable value for that river segment. You also are an author. Yes, tell, tell me, <laughs> tell me more about that. What books? Um, well, I published educational. I published a hiking guide and natural history guide mm-hmm. to the Siskiyou Mountains. It's called the Siskiyou Crest Hikes History and Ecology. And uh, I kind of hate to admit, to folks, that it's sort of recently out of print. I did two pressings, and mm-hmm. I uh, it's you know I've sold copies around the Rogue Valley for the last. I don't know, eight or ten years or so. But the book covers everything from Mount Ashland over to the Smith River, and it focuses on that Siskiyou Crest region. So there's 75 hikes in it, many of which are, you know, maintained trails. Some of them are off-trail routes. Some of them are old historic trails. And so it covers the whole region pretty well and gives you an idea where you can go all throughout the Siskiyou Crest region. But I also tried to write the book in a way that was more informative or more interesting than your average hiking guide. So as I walk you through the trails in the book, you know, I'll go through the history or maybe the history of activism in that area. Why these forests still are still remaining? Who saved them? Because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that essentially every beautiful environment that we have left in southwestern Oregon has been protected by someone just like you or me out there that loved that landscape. The book also covers a lot of history, a lot of ecology. There's kind of breakout sections that cover different botanical features. And so I tried to make it really informative and really interactive so that you could learn about the region and not, you know, a lot of hiking guides, it's just like, this is how you get to the trailhead and here's a short description. Yeah. And I tried to add more detail and kind of uh, use it as a way to further my advocacy and also just as a way for people to, to really understand how unique this landscape is and why it needs to be protected. Yeah, well, understanding where you are and what's there. I mean, so often we're passing things, and unless you're really paying attention and, and looking things up, you know, and it, you're not always doing that. So that's awesome that you have a book that does that. Now, when is it going to be back in print is the question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. I would love we'll to redo to... the book, but uh, yeah. I do feel that if I was to, re, you know, to republish, I would want to kind of update it. Yeah. And so, I don't know, that's At a big job. Point, but... <laughs> okay. It took well, me eight we won't years. We hold you to it, but... <laughs> it took me eight years to put the book together originally, oh, and okay. a whole lot of hiking, which I enjoyed immensely. So if I could find an excuse to do all that hiking again, and <laughs> I would happily uh, work on the book. But it, it is a big project, and there may still be some copies left, I think, at the um, Northwest Nature Shop. But otherwise, it's, it's virtually out of print at this point. Right, maybe our local libraries might have it, too. I believe at Roosh? least a couple of the local libraries have it, yeah. and I believe Roosh does as well, and okay. Medford and Ashland. What was what was the title of the book again? It's called The Siskiyou Crest Hikes, History, and Ecology. All right. I'm writing this down so that we can make sure and put that in the show notes so that people can take a look if they can find it at their local library. It's worth checking out when you're getting out to go explore. Yeah. And really, there's no other book that covers that region in the way that this book does really comprehensively. Mm-hmm. So if you love the Siskiyou Mountains, it's out of print, but it's sort of a classic at this point. Yeah. So. Um, it will help you get around, and it, it's, it's, it does need some updates because there's been a lot that's gone on since that time politically, 
and even just out there on the environment, some areas maybe have burned since I wrote about them and things like that. But generally what you'll find in the book is really helpful and will really get you out to a lot of wild places and help you understand them. Excellent. And if people can't find that book and they're wanting to get out into those areas, are there any other books or sites or things that you would recommend to kind of help people really understand? Especially I love the way that you bring all three of those aspects, right? It's like you've got the history, you've got the botany, and, well, I guess that would be part of the history, just how why this is still here is because somebody put some time and energy into saving it. Is that information that you also have on your website to a certain degree or is to a certain degree I, I also do run the Siski Crest blog and so I've been doing that pretty much I, I started that when I put the book out and I use that for a variety of things a lot of times to you know as a as a tool for the advocacy and the activism that I do so you'll find a lot of updates on land management projects and way to get ways to get involved or maybe comment on those land management projects but I also use it just to kind of highlight the ecology of the area. Recently, I did a post on what we call a super bloom in the Slater Fire area. So mm. the Slater Fire burned in September of 2020 when the Alameda Fire burned here in the Rogue Valley. And during that big wind event, the Slater Fire, unfortunately, did burn a lot of homes in Happy Camp and was a tragedy for a lot of the people that lived there uh, and the community there. But in the mountains over the you know two years since the burn... There's just been this incredible, what we call a super bloom. I mean, it's just thick, thick wildflowers everywhere, you know, swaths of color. I mean, unbelievable abundance up there right now in terms of floral resources, pollinators, things like that. So we try to is that happening now or is that, that was, when, when do those flowers bloom? They're probably still going. I mean, I think the biggest flush is probably over, but the abundance up there is incredible right now. And so I, I would imagine at the elevation, at the higher elevations, you're still going to have a lot of fall blooming species up there. And people should, should just go check it out. I mean, it really is amazing to see kind of how nature rebounds and re regenerates and rejuvenates itself after even a very hot, high severity fire. So a lot of the trees were killed in that area, but a lot of the understory species and a lot of the herbaceous species are adapted to that kind of disturbance. And so... What we may see as devastation, you know, the environment just kind of recalculates and moves on. And, you'll, you know, generally after, you know, a lot of people see these wildfires fires as destructive, and they can be, especially the, when they're burning homes like the Alameda fire and things like that. But what a lot of people don't realize is how well adapted these environments are to wildfire itself. And so you'll just, you know, my advice generally is around two years after a fire burns, mm -hmm. Go check it out. If you love wildflowers, you will be blown away. I mean, that is the biggest flower displays I've seen in southwestern Oregon are often two to three years after a wildfire burns. So you'll find me a lot of times in the backcountry, in the Red Buttes Wilderness or the Siski Wilderness or wherever, following those fires around the landscape. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll even find rare plants that you didn't know were there or maybe weren't documented mm -hmm. because, you know, life really does burst. Uh, following those fires and, and it can be quite quite aggressive so I, I try to cover a lot of those kind of not really issues but those kind of things as well and highlight kind of the biodiversity the beauty so there's some writing on there that's just ecology based with a lot of pretty pictures and then there's some that's more about protecting and defending the environment that that is so beautiful and that we love here in southern Oregon. well it's so funny i've, I've uh heard super bloom because i follow super blooms in the desert but I don't think I've ever heard it as it relates to 
in the mountains or specifically after a fire. So I love that, and mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to have to get out. What I tell people is California's super blooms are triggered by rain events. In southwestern Oregon, our super blooms are triggered by wildfire. So, you know, it doesn't always have to be a high-severity fire. You know, just burning that duff, those duff layers, depositing that mineral-rich ash, it sort of works like fertilizer mm-hmm. for a lot of these species, and it triggers germination in a lot of species. So you just get this mass germination of wildflowers and this, you know, incredible display of color that will surprise a lot of people. So I strongly encourage people to check that out. You know, it's important to understand that a lot of these processes are are natural in this environment. And although shocking to us, maybe not so much to the to the species that have evolved there for thousands or millions of years. I was just actually talking yesterday with Chris Adlam over at the OSU, and he was saying the same thing, just this perception that we have a fire is destructive and it's bad and negative and, you know, it's it, but to understand that it also has a positive side and yes, it can destroy, but it has this ability to bring back life. And I think he was saying in our area, every eight years was sort of historically what this area would burn. It's, um, it varies a lot given the, well, you know, it was over, you know, 150 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And it does vary a lot here because mm-hmm. we have really complex environments. So one of the things the Siskiyou Crest does is it is, and it's unique about it, is it runs east to west. So that's how it can. Most of the mountain ranges in the west coast are running north south. The Coast Range in the Pacific Northwest, Cascade Mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and there are a handful of mountain ranges throughout California, and really only a couple in the Pacific Northwest. They call transverse ranges, so they run east to west, and they connect together those north south tending mountain ranges. So they're really important for connectivity. But what that also does is it creates these really stark differences in exposure. So you'll have south face, you know, east-west orientation gives you really harsh south-facing slopes, which can be hot and dry mm-hmm. and tend to burn more frequently, tend to burn with more severity, especially as you get higher on the slope. Mm-hmm. And then those north slopes can be really protected and cool. And so there's going to be these big shifts in microclimates depending on where you're at in the landscape. So we have areas that are really prone to fire, and then we have areas that we call fire refugia where fire tends to either not burn or burn at lower severity. Mm-hmm. And you find a lot of our diversity there in terms of conifer species. So one of the things that's interesting on the Siskiyou Crest is this abundance in conifer species. And a lot of the unique species that we have are kind of, they're either what we call range extensions. So they're kind of sitting outside their normal range, mm-hmm. or they're at the very southern end or at the very northern end. And so we do have a lot of these species that creep in from the Pacific Northwest and their southernmost populations are in the Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains. And so those areas are able to exist, you know, those, those environments are able to persist because they're in an area that we call fire refugia that tends mm-hmm. to burn less severely and, and maybe, you know, less frequently as mm-hmm. well. So there's a lot of variation. It, you know, at lower elevations, you get more frequent fire. At higher elevations, you might get a lot of lightning strikes. But unless the conditions are conducive, that fire might not carry a long ways. In other situations during droughts, you know, yeah. it's going to burn across vast landscapes. So it's really complex. Like there's a lot of places that historically probably did burn, you know, eight, ten years in, you know, in those kinds of intervals. And then there's other locations in these fire refugia that they support the kinds of environments that they do. 
because they might have gone longer periods of time. The fires might have burned around them or missed them or, you know, it was just too moist for the fires to burn in there. So it's that variation, not only in geology and aspect, and but also in fire you know, yeah. history that really influences the, the botanical diversity out there. One thing that CISDUs will teach you is anytime you generalize anything, you're wrong. You know, <laughs> the CISDUs are going to, re- they, they constantly surprise you. And some of that is, is the geology, like I said, and some of it's just the way that all these different things interact with the complexity of the environment that surrounds us. So really cool. Yeah. And so we just happen to live in this area. That is this, cause this doesn't, you don't see this very many places like this. And so I understand, and I've talked to a few different folks about the diversity out there. And I, I never realized that moving up here, just the amount of diversity. And it, it sounds like compared to many other areas, it really is a plethora. Yeah. I mean, it's, one of the things that's interesting is, like I said, you've got this east-west orientation. Yeah. But you've also, so it connects the Cascades to the Coast Range. But there's also influences coming in from the south. So you get California chaparral species moving into the Applegate, and those are some of the northernmost populations. You have oak woodland species coming into the Applegate and into the Rogue Valley that are found nowhere else in the state of Oregon. You have Pacific Northwest species creeping south mm. and extending into the into the Klamath Siskiyou outside their prevailing range. And then you also have influences coming down the Klamath River from Klamath Falls and the Great Basin. And so you have things like... Um, you know, some of the more westernmost populations of of, uh, of juniper you know, up on Anderson Butte, up above the Little Applegate. You know, there's you have mountain mahogany that grows out in the eastern Oregon area, up on the ridges, up on the Siskiyou Crest, mingling with these Pacific Northwest species. So it's, you know, it's there's a lot of influences here in southern Oregon, and it's everything's kind of transitional here. Every It's kind of the meeting ground, and like I said, the axis of diversity on the west coast, because... You know, not only does it facilitate this flow from mountain range to mountain range, but it's also kind of climactically where all these different ecosystems can come together. And so there's species kind of spilling into our region from just about everywhere in the West. Well, I'm excited to go do more. I have, it's so funny. I get stuck on my same hike. So I was just talking to somebody about this, how, how I really like when I, somebody else plans a hike that I haven't been on because I tend to keep doing the same ones that I get used to and that I enjoy because they're beautiful. But I, I have not done a lot of deep Applegate hiking out there. Some in the Red Butte Wilderness, a little mm-hmm. bit out there, but not not as much as I obviously need to, and especially for a super bloom, which is <laughs> definitely my my thing. I love wildflowers. Mm-hmm. So. Well, check out the Slater fire this year. It was really nice, okay. and, and like I said, track those fires. And yeah, usually that second year you'll get the you'll get the annual species blooming and then you'll start getting the perennials that took a year or two after the fire to really kick into overdrive and I think you'll be impressed. Excellent. Yay. Well, when you're not in the mountains, how often do you ever come out of the mountains? <laughs> this is a question. Not I very gonna, often. <laughs> I was going to ask if there's anything that you would tell listeners about other places or things in our area outside of the mountain ranges that you really enjoy or appreciate or are you mostly just that that's, you know, that's your spot i'm and that's okay if that I, is you don't have to <laughs> i'm not very well versed in what to do in southern oregon otherwise i've been yeah. here my whole life but i certainly kind of tend to hide in the mountains and work in the mountains and play in the mountains and uh my advice wouldn't be worth much <laughs> unless <laughs> well, i'm talking to you about, unless yeah. i'm talking to you about the mountains so yeah. 
but you know, like I said, I mean, I just, I really love Southern Oregon. I love all the diverse environments. I've grown up here and, you know, been supported by folks in this community. And I think that that, you know, to me, that's what I love about Southern Oregon. I love the people that have, that have helped shape who I am and help get me to where I am today. And there's just so many good folks that have contributed to, you know, protecting this landscape and, and supporting the folks that want to, you know, take that to the next level. Um, so super appreciative to the community for, you know, all the support that they've given myself and others over the years. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it, you know, Southern Oregon's about the people and it's about the, the landscape and that's kind of, mm-hmm. that's what I love. And that's what I recommend people get to know because we got good folks out there and we got that's a great good. landscape and you combine those two and it's pretty hard to beat. Yeah. And I, you're not, you're not the first person that has said that about community, the community here and the people here are really special. So I, that is definitely worth repeating because I think it is. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. I really appreciate getting to hear a little bit more about that range and just at the terrain. Um, and hopefully our listeners have learned some things and we'll get out and get on some hikes so that they're learning to appreciate it and therefore want to protect it and keep it so that our children can keep enjoying it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Well, we'll be back again next week. And until then, have a great one. This podcast is produced by Simona Fino and co-produced by James Dedakis and Jaded Media. Original music by Samuel Lawrence.